Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. According to a new United Nations report, up to 1 million of the estimated 8 million plant and animal species on Earth are at risk of extinction. One out of eight species at risk of extinction. This is very alarming. Unfortunately, there's been very little coverage of this on the news. But this is a huge deal, and we should be talking about this. Hundreds of experts work together to create this global assessment. It's an 1,800-page report. Believe it or not, it's even bigger than the Mueller report. A total of 455 authors representing 50 countries taking part. This is according to the IPBS, which is the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Service. Its findings are based on reviews of some 15,000 scientific and government sources. And so we're now living on a planet facing one million species becoming extinct. Now, the report did not list individual species, but found that 25% of mammals, more than 40% of amphibian species, and nearly 33% of sharks and 25% of plant groups are threatened with extinction. And according to the World Wildlife Fund's Living Planet Report last year, populations of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, and amphibians have shrunk by 60% in just over 40 years. Okay, so let's back up for a second to find some words and think for a minute about what this really means and why we humans should even care. The word biodiversity refers to the number and variety of species inhabiting the earth. An ecosystem is a community of interacting organisms and their physical environment. Healthy and stable ecosystems have a high level of biodiversity, meaning there's a variety of species and organisms living there and contributing. And that's a key word here. Each organism has its own role and purpose in that ecosystem. Every species, no matter how small, has an important role to play. We're all interconnected, humans, animals, plants, and the environment. Have you heard the phrase, the interconnected web of life? And this interconnectedness is essential. And we humans and all species depend on healthy ecosystems. And disturbing this balance within the ecosystem could have devastating effects for all of us and all living beings. Here's a small example of our interconnectedness. Humans need food to survive. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, more than three-quarters of the world's food crops rely, at least in part, on the activities of bees, wasps, butterflies, and other pollinators. This new UN report found that 10% of insect species are under threat. Well, a decline in the pollinators can pose a threat to our food supply. Another great example of the necessity of healthy ecosystems is coral reefs. Think about what happens if our coral reefs start to disappear. And they are. Actually, coral reefs are dying at an alarming rate all over the globe. And they are an essential part of the ocean because they provide food and shelter for many marine animals. In fact, more than 25% of all marine species depend on coral reefs. And our activities, human activities, are killing the coral reefs. Activities such as destructive fishing practices and overfishing, pollution and acidification, plastic pollution. A study in the Pacific Ocean found that bags and bottles are sickening and killing reefs from Thailand to Australia. We're polluting our waters. We're polluting our entire planet. We litter. We hunt and kill our beautiful wildlife. We destroy trees and habitats of other living beings. We are degrading and destroying our Earth's ecosystems. 
You hear all the time about our polar bears being threatened by habitat loss. Well, did you know our tigers, giraffes, and rhinos, they too are being threatened? These are the beautiful animals you hope to see, or maybe your children or the next generation will see on photographic African safaris. The majestic West African lion is gravely endangered. And many of these are apex predators, meaning they reside at the top of the food chain. Thus, they play a very important role in maintaining the balance and biodiversity of an ecosystem. If these guys go extinct, that affects other animals and plants that live in that environment and affects the entire food chain. Let's think it through. No top predator, so their herbivorous prey begins to boom. And then these animals who require vegetation for food will destroy a large amount of plant life, like grasses and trees, and then comes loss of habitat for other animals. And how are humans affected? Well, we need healthy soil and clean water, which depends on the plants. You see how the entire balance can be disruptive. According to the World Wildlife Fund, the western black rhino and the northern white rhino are extinct in the wild. In 2011, the International Union for Conservation of Nature declared the western black rhino extinct. How did this happen? We killed them off. Poachers killed the rhinos off. They were killed for their horns, which were then sold to the black market in China and used in traditional Asian medicine. In 2014, I remember reading when one of the last northern white rhinos in the world died in Kenya, leaving only six of the species in the world. And I remember thinking, you know, how terribly sad what we're doing to our beautiful animals with whom we share this planet. But I wasn't really thinking about the crucial role rhinos play in the ecosystem and the downstream effect it would have on the numerous other species if all the rhino species became extinct. I'm thinking about it now. Rhinos are grazing animals. They graze. That helps maintain the savanna grasslands. And those grasslands sustain numerous other animals. We need to protect our wildlife. Our mountain lion, another apex predator, which resides throughout the Western Hemisphere, right in our own backyard, they too are threatened. So one million species at risk of extinction is a huge deal. And you should care about this because loss of biodiversity affects the well-being of humans for current and future generations. And you might say, okay, well, through our planet's history, extinction of living organisms and species have occurred and we're still here, we're doing okay. And that's correct. We don't see dinosaurs walking down the street. But the thing is, the report found that human actions threaten more species now than ever before. The primary threats to biodiversity identified in the report include pollution, poaching, overfishing, and climate change, as well as changes in land use, such as devoting more land to agriculture or livestock. So this is a very big deal for all of us, that one million species are at risk for extinction. And the report was designed to guide policymakers and government on conservation and sustainability decisions and try to focus on preserving biodiversity. We need to stop damaging the Earth's capacity to create clean and breathable air, fruitful soil, and healthy, drinkable water. Sir Robert Watson, the chair of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Service, said in a statement, The health of ecosystems on which we and all other species depend is deteriorating more rapidly than ever. We are eroding the very foundation of our economies, livelihoods, food security, health, and quality of life worldwide. Watson added that while it's not too late to begin to change course, humans must start now at every level, from local to global. Kitty Block, representing the Humane Society of the United States and Humane Society International, voiced strong approval of the report's findings in the following release. Here it is. 
The IPBS findings that one million of the world's estimated eight million species are threatened with extinction, that the rate of species extinction is accelerating, and that direct exploitation is one of the main culprits, and that unsustainable food production is destroying wildlife ecosystems, is a wake-up call that must be heeded. The Humane Society of the United States and Humane Society International join the IPBS in calling for urgent action to restore and protect nature for the public good, including stricter regulation of vested commercial interests that extract wildlife for profit. No one needs elephant ivory trinkets, shark fin soup, sea turtle shell jewelry, African lion hunting trophies, giraffe skin pillows, or wild-caught coral reef fish for their aquariums. However, Everyone needs the survival of these species for the health of the planet. We must also reform our food production systems with a priority on reducing unsustainable levels of meat consumption, which threaten natural habitats and resources that benefit wild and domestic species alike. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now celebrating our 11th year of broadcasts, visit us at animalstodayradio.com. Peter, looks like you have a lot of news to share with us today. Okay, let's start with uh, big news from Beyond Meat Incorporated. They are the company that makes a number of plant-based products. They had an IPO, so they went public. The price of the offering was $25 per share, and by the end of the day, the shares were selling at $65.75 per share. Wow. So 163% above the IPO price, making it the best performing first day IPO in almost two decades. So talk about excitement about this company. Beyond Meat, they make the Beyond Burger. Love it. A couple of Beyond Sausage products and uh, two varieties of Beyond Crumbles. According to the material released by the company, they're going to use the proceeds to expand current manufacturing facilities, open new ones, and to finance research and development, and also to boost sales and marketing along with other activities. And you may have noticed they are using a strategy where they are marketing not to vegans and vegetarians, but to everyone. They're putting their products in the meat case and trying to persuade meat eaters to go for it, which is pretty smart if you ask me, being that only about 5% of the U.S. population is vegetarian or vegan. The company is expecting the alternative meat category to become a multi-billion dollar worldwide market. And, you know, right now, the global market for meat is about $1.4 trillion annually. So they're going to take a chunk out of that. For comparison, the non-dairy milk substitute market, like soy milk and almond milk and cashew milk, that's now 13% of the size of the dairy milk industry. So that's grown rather quickly. So a very exciting development. There is competition. The market is new, but it is uh, crowded. There's Boca Foods and Gardein and Impossible Foods and Tofurky and a bunch of others. It's really a golden age for vegetarians and vegans, isn't it? It's We have great options and great opportunities for meat eaters to uh, try this out. Okay, and here's a sad story in the Santa Monica Mountains of California. You know, they track these mountain lions there, and a three-year-old mountain lion who had yet to reproduce was found dead, and he was found to have rat poison. In fact, six different types of anticoagulant rat poison types on his necropsy. He had internal hemorrhaging in his head and lungs. One of the characteristics of cats who die from rat poisoning is that they get mange, which is very unusual to get otherwise. And this affects their immune system, and then they just perish. His GPS collar sent out what they call a mortality signal, which is 
pretty sad, and they found him dead. So sad. And, you know, the use of the super toxic second generation rodenticides is really gotten out of hand. And this is the consequence. The rats consume it and then they're consumed by their predators and ultimately ends up killing the big cats and other animals. It's really a shame. Okay, please stay with us after the break. More of the show. You're listening to Animals Today. Walmart is about to expand their footprint in the pet pharmaceutical retailing business, as well as increasing the number of vet clinics they have in their stores. Right now, there are 21 vet offices in Walmarts around the country, and they have announced that in the next year, they are going to add 100 of these. Customers should find them quite economical, which goes along with the Walmart philosophy, and they plan to stock their in-store pharmacies with the top 30 most prescribed pet medications. Online, Walmart will be filling prescriptions from veterinarians, and they're taking aim at Chewy.com's power in that area. Part of the reason for the growth is the behavior of the millennials. Seven in 10 millennials has a pet, and they are willing to pay to keep them happy. On average, millennial dog owners spend about $1,300 per year on their animal, and the cat owners about $900. Walmart's also planning on expanding their line of pet foods, including more premium brands, which is also appealing to your millennial pet lover. Lori, here's a giraffe item. You know, the population of giraffe in the wild is about 97,000. This represents a decline of 40% in the last 30 years. The usual causes are at play, habitat loss, poaching, legal and illegal hunting, So, finally, after a long delay, federal wildlife officials in the U.S. said that they are going to consider listing the giraffe as an endangered species under the Endangered Species Act. So, Fish and Wildlife Service will now begin their review before making a final decision. Public comments are open. There's been quite a delay on getting their attention on this, but it appears that they are about to look into it. And hopefully, or unfortunately, the giraffe will be granted this unfortunate status. Between 2006 and 2015, more than 3,700 giraffe trophies were imported into the United States and almost 40,000 giraffe specimens during that same time, like bone carvings or bones and bone pieces, skin pieces, jewelry and leather goods. So under the Endangered Species Act, if they were granted status as endangered, uh, that practice would end, which is very hopeful. A new study found that vegans pay up to 65% more for a meal at a restaurant than those ordering standard meals. Hmm. So, Peter, I guess the notion that you're a cheap date because you're a vegetarian and you just eat a plate of vegetables or a salad for dinner is no longer held, right? Wow, that's interesting. I wouldn't want to be called a cheap date. I object Uh to the word cheap. (laughs) Let me ask you something. Yeah, go ahead. You being a guy and all. When you were dating, would you talk among your buddies and ever refer to any of the women you dated as a cheap date? Boy, I don't remember. Oh, it's a very on. long time ago. 
So would cheap date mean little money is needed for them to enjoy the evening or sex after a few drinks no, is likely I, to occur? No, no, no. I don't think that. I think um, they have a low alcohol tolerance, so you only need to buy them one drink, something like that. Is first, that what it is? For sex. Not sex. Okay. Don't go to oh, Yeah. You don't think about sex. Anyway, the stat is from caterer.com. And caterer. Yes. Yeah. And the study was done in the UK. Yeah. Over 2,000 people were surveyed and asked about their dining out habits, and the results showed that dietary requirements were actually an opportunity for profit for restaurants rather than a burden. So raise the prices if you have a special request. Yeah. Mm. I know we don't go out much, but it sure feels like we vegans are a burden to restaurants, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Some of them, like, they're doing you a favor to serve you a meal. Waiters give you a pinch slip or a sigh (laughs) or slight roll of the eye when you want to modify your dinner. Yeah. Like, I want to substitute avocado or tofu instead of chicken and... Oh. No substitution. No soup for you. <laughs> no soup for you. Seriously, I don't find a lot of chefs willing to veer off the menu or make substitutions or but when you try find to one, be creative. Yeah. When you find a place, then you really got to go for it. You know, it's really yes, great. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the report found that the current revenue of restaurants across the UK could significantly increase if they fulfilled the demands of the special or selective order. According to the data, 25% of UK diners, so one in four diners, are considered selective eaters. With 9% of these opting for vegan meals, 22% vegetarian, and 30% having food allergies. And of these selective eaters, 80% dine out at least once a month, and 60% would go out if restaurants were more willing to accommodate them. See? Yeah. We're not alone. Have you heard of this word flexitarian? Oh, yeah. Okay, like you sometimes eat meat? Yeah. It's a stupid word. Yeah. Okay. They found the selective eaters are more likely to be under the age of 35, identify as female, live in an urban area or on an income of 50,000 pounds or more. They're also more likely to live in the east of the UK. So bottom line, you pay more if you're vegan. Vegan ingredients are typically cheaper, but the time and effort going into preparing the dinner is usually higher. Okay, I was a little surprised by this study, but it sort of makes sense now. I bet you things will even out as uh, more of us make our voices known. I hope so. Lori, some really bad news about the vaquita. You know, the vaquita is the smallest cetacean. It's a little porpoise. It is critically endangered. These vaquita, they live in the Gulf of California, the upper part, the Sea of Cortez, And the latest report from the International Committee for the Recovery of the Vaquita, uh, CIRVA, C-I-R-V-A, they announced that between 6 and 22 individual vaquitas remain. Wow. Yeah, we've been following this, and uh, there have been a lot of efforts to try to protect them. They are dying because they are getting stuck in gill nets, these huge nets that are now illegal but they are still being deployed by fishermen. And the fish the fishermen are really going after is called the totoaba. This is a medium-sized fish, and it has got a bladder that is used in traditional Chinese medicine. Oh. So it is highly sought. So they are just going after these. And the poor vaquita, they are getting stuck in these gill nets and just drowning. It's so sad. Didn't you talk to Paul Watson about the fate of the vaquita? Yeah, we talked to him a a while ago. And even a few years ago, it looked pretty bad. And uh, Sea Shepherd and other groups are working very hard to uh, save the species. But it's really tough news. So the poor vaquita, it's so sad when you see like extinction happening in real time. I really hope they can avert it. 
And finally, if you recall, we covered a couple of times the stories of the killing contest of the majestic cow-nose rays that live in Maryland. You know, they have these hunting contests, and it's really cruel and totally unnecessary. Well, the governor, Governor Hogan, he just signed into law an extension on the moratorium on killing contests that target those rays until the state prepares a management plan for them, one that we are hoping will ban the cruel and environmentally irresponsible contests forever. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. If you follow Peter like we do, you may find some of their activities a little out there, like the caged protesters or the people in animal costumes. You know what I'm referring to. Lori recently spoke with PETA's leader, Ingrid Newkirk, and she was absolutely unapologetic about such methods. But if you cringe a little bit when seeing that, you may be interested in learning about a PETA enterprise that is 180 degrees away from the silliness. It's called the PETA International Science Consortium. With us now is Dr. Julia Baines. She serves as science policy advisor for the consortium. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. Okay, so what is the Peter International Science Consortium? Well, like you said, your listeners may be very familiar with Peter U.S.'s activities, but what you may not know is that Peter has affiliates all over the world from Europe to Australia and Asia. And for more than a decade now, PETA and its international affiliates have been providing national and international regulatory agencies and companies with technical and scientific expertise in modern, reliable, non-animal research and testing methods. So in a move to coordinate these particular activities, the PETA International Science Consortium was created in 2012 and this has enabled us to bring together the scientific expertise of the PETA affiliates under one umbrella. So now we have 15 PhD and master's level scientists who are advising the science consortium. And they have a broad range of expertise in sectors from pharmaceutical development, molecular biology, biochemistry, genetics, toxicology, and even nanomaterials. And it's this expertise that allows the consortium 
to very effectively promote non-animal research methods. And they'll do this by working directly with companies and regulatory agencies all over the world. We participate in technical working groups. We host workshops, webinars, and we present on these activities at international scientific conferences. And we even publish on our work in academic journals. That is great. So the bottom line is you are trying to promote the increased use of methods and techniques for biomedical and uh, medical testing, pharmaceutical testing, toxicology testing, just to push forward the whole enterprise internationally. Yes, that's right. So it's really working at both the national and the international level to try and harmonize and promote approaches to the assessment and testing often of different types of substances, whether that might be chemical substances, pesticides, or even things that are used for medical devices. And it's about promoting and helping develop and implement the actual use of the non-animal testing approaches. And this is all for regulatory testing. So to put that into context, that you can broadly categorize the types of tests and experiments that animals are used in into two very broad categories. One of those is regulatory testing, which is where the science consortium focuses its work. And regulatory testing is very much focused on the types of tests that are required by law. So these might be tests that are required by the US Food and Drug Administration or the Environmental Protection Agency. Whereas non-regulatory testing would include, for example, very basic research for um, diseases that might be conducted at universities. And this is the kind of research that's not required by law. So it's often done on a whim or for curiosity's sake. But what we focus on is the regulatory side. Now, the folks pictured on the website, are they employees or uh, uh, volunteer advisors? So all of those scientists, they work for the PETA international affiliates. So they may work for PETA US. I myself, I work for PETA UK. We have scientists with PETA India, yeah. PETA Germany. And so the science consortium was coordin- really coordinates that scientific expertise of the scientists that are employed by all of the PETA affiliates. So all of the affiliates are members of the science consortium. Why is it so important to work internationally? Uh, You mentioned harmonizing. Are you uh, talking about the challenges in getting uh, the international community speaking to each other? Yes, we very much do try to get the international community to speak together and align in what they try to do. To give you one very specific example that demonstrates this nicely, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, the Peace International Science Consortium uh, is a part of a collaborative group of various animal protection organizations that actually has a seat at meetings of the OECD. And one of the areas really is to focus the development of guidelines for chemical testing. So we go to these OECD meetings where decisions are made about chemical testing guidelines. And our goal is to gain greater international acceptance of the more innovative and robust Animal 3 testing methods and strategies. So we will 
go to these meetings, we will talk to the various international regulatory agencies, we will comment on international test guidelines, and even submit our own projects for consideration by the OECD members. So one uh, old-fashioned, really cruel test, the old-fashioned rabbit Dre's test, are we getting away from that? Is that still happening? Unfortunately, the Dre's test does still happen under certain circumstances and in certain places, in particular in China, for example. It still happens there a lot for cosmetics tests. But we are successfully moving away from it. And in fact, one of the recent projects that um, the Pete International Science Consortium has been involved in is actually trying to improve some of the non-animal testing methods for testing eye irritation and corrosion. And so there are now some brilliant methods that we have helped promote and implement into some of these international test guidelines. And indeed, some of the regulatory agencies, for example, the European Chemicals Agency, actually require now the non-animal testing methods. And this has really been a huge boost and a result of some of our work to promote the better, more robust non-animal testing strategies. So by helping the regulatory agencies understand perhaps how some of these tests work, how they can be used for meeting some of the international and national um, regulations to meet the data requirements that are needed to be able to get chemicals onto the market, and talking to the companies that are often required to do these tests, and helping them understand how these non-animal tests can actually be used, then we can therefore help promote more of the implementation and the use of the non-animal methods. So that is a particular area for the skin and eye irritation, uh, where we can be moving away now from the awful tests where chemicals were either applied to the surface of rabbit's eyes or onto their shaved skin. The whole field of developing scientific testing methods in these areas, getting away from animals, it seems to be really growing rapidly. And if you are a young student or high school, college student, this would be a great area to look into, uh, to pursue, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And this is probably one of my favorite things, actually, that the Science Consortium does, is that we provide awards and run competitions for early career scientists or Um, young scientists. So, for example, just this year we provided an award for an early career researcher to attend a summer school that was being run by the European Commission's Joint Research Centre. And this isn't anything new. This is something that we've been doing for quite a few years now. Um, We've provided funding for other scientists to attend conferences or to go to workshops so they can get hands-on experience in using the animal-free test methods. And it is, it's really important that they get this education early on if they want to work within this particular industry or regulatory arena that they learn very early that the non-animal test methods are actually the more reliable approaches. You know, it's it's a win-win situation both for science and for compassion to be taking these particular approaches. So that's something we're really keen on promoting. Does the consortium make grants to researchers directly? We do it in the forms of these competitions. Yeah, we have provided funding to um, researchers and companies where they can apply for these certain competitions to 
either win equipment from us that we've provided the funds for or to use materials. So, for example, um, we've teamed up with a company called MatTech in the past to award three-dimensional human tissue constructs to researchers that could then use those particular cell cultures to replace their um, work, which would previously have required animals. And for that particular competition that was run a few years ago now, we had about 50 proposals from more than a dozen countries were submitted. And that really demonstrates the breadth of applications in which human tissues can actually be used and the strong interest from the scientific community to want to move towards these non-animal approaches. So these were human cells that could be used instead of testing on animals for the skin and eye irritation or skin allergy type of tests that we mentioned earlier. Are you working on it growing your consortium? We are often looking for new scientists to join our team, absolutely, because we like to expand to work in as many different countries as possible. You know, the demands on the types of work that we do is forever increasing. And I would say to scientists working in the field of non-animal methods or who have experience in toxicology or reproductive toxicity, to have a look on the Science Consortium's website and have a look at our job opportunities that are currently open. But absolutely, we are a continuing growing team of scientists. Please tell our listeners the website address. Absolutely. It's www.piscltd.org.uk. And on there, you can see all about the types of research we do, who we are. And there's also a list of our publications and videos, presentations, so a whole host of information for scientists and companies to take a look at as well as any interested members of your audience today. Dr. Julia Baines, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. More with Animals Today after this break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. 
leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. You know those stories about folks who go into a shelter and adopt the animal who's been there for the longest or for whatever reason, it's just so hard to get adopted. I think the world of people like that, you know, if it fits into your family's lifestyle, consider adopting one or more of these challenging pets because, you know, they, they need you. Uh, mistreated animals who are up for adoption present a situation requiring special efforts. Kit Darling is with us today to speak about adopting pets like this. Kit is with Texas A&M College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, where she's Infection Control Coordinator. Hi, Kit. Hi. You wrote a piece for the publication from Texas A&M called Pet Talk. So animals who have been abused, uh, what sort of challenges do they represent to their adopters? A lot depends on the situation the animal's been through and, you know, how that's affected them. So sometimes they may have some physical injuries that have to be dealt with, um, you know, wounds or broken bones, that sort of thing. And then, you know, they've been mistreated by humans, so trying to uh, trust a human again may be difficult for them. Sometimes, just like with people that have gone through bad situations, some people bounce back really quickly, some a little slower, um, and that can be true for the animals. So I think a big thing is really first letting them uh, gain trust in you, showing them love, um, being patient with them. Yeah. Is it hard to uh, anticipate what's in store for you when you adopt an animal that has been abused? It must be hard to know, is this going to be a week and then we're good, or is this going to be a year? Um, you know, and that's very variable. And it's true with any animal that we have. Um, as I like to tell people, they all kind of learn on different levels, just like if you um, remember um, going to school, you know, you had some people that 
got the subject really quickly, and some it took more effort and more time. Likewise, with ones that have been in bad situations, some may be just very happy that somebody shows them love and you know can recover pretty quickly, and others may be more cautious um, and take more time. One of the things you mentioned is uh, giving the pet, especially a dog, a quiet, private place to retreat to. That seems pretty important to me. That is very important. They need a place, um, a quiet place they can retreat. Some of them are even hesitant to come out of hiding. So if you can provide a safe place for them, I suggest um, like a crate or uh, pen area where they learn that's that's their space, their safe is there. Some of them like to be kind of in the hiding situation. You can always uh, provide tasty treat, their favorite uh, toy they enjoy, uh, making it uh, their area to uh, retreat to anytime they want to. What challenges does having other animals in the house bring? Is that tougher or make it easier? Sometimes it can be helpful. Sometimes maybe the animals will trust each other before they trust other humans. Um, And then other times it still may be a scary situation to them. Each animal is individual, so you kind of have to learn what works best for them. Um, One of the things that I had mentioned um, in my article, it's important to introduce other animals and family members kind of one by one. You don't want to overwhelm a new animal that's coming in your household um, with everybody greeting it at one time. Yeah, you don't know how they're going to react to that, whether they will withdraw further or even become aggressive, or it could be quite unpredictable, I would imagine. Right. So again, taking it slowly and baby steps is the best yeah. um, and, and providing them you know, the break, you know, um, giving them some time in between introductions. And, and that may be hour. It may be several days. It just depends on the individual animal. Now, sometimes you do need professional help like an animal behaviorist. Do they come to your home and uh, check things out or phone consult? How does that work if uh, you need help? So it really depends on the animal behaviorist. So there are ones that um, you make appointments with. They can talk to you over the phone. Usually you set up an appointment to visit with them. Um, And then they may actually want to come to your home. Um, I think a good many of them at first um, kind of meet you at a neutral location with your animal. Oh, I see. Well, any uh, final thoughts on this, Kit? I just want to repeat, I think the folks who seek out these these animals in need are really uh, special. I think this is um, something very important that, to give these animals a chance. It can be very rewarding once you see an animal overcome their fears, actually bond with you, and uh, have some joy in their life. You know, that can be very rewarding. Animals are great to offer their unconditional love. Um, It it just is important with um, these animals to give them love, be patient with them, give them time to trust you. Kit Darling, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you. 
And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>